you so much for being here. What a, a joy to get to be together as sisters in Christ and to hear from one of our own. We often bring in other speakers, but it's so nice to have someone who knows their Bible and has a strong testimony and, um, and who doesn't like to be up front. And so, <laughs> Robin, we see you always behind the scenes. So thank you for being willing to come out from um, behind backstage, as we say and what I'm used to, um, to be here. And if you ever want us, I have this sometimes, if you want us to just sort of like close our eyes. Don't no, look no, at me. No, 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 actually, yeah. Okay. It's, yeah. Not, it's not quite it's like not that. Okay, good. No, no. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, shall I pray for you Please before do. you begin? Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you for your servant, Robin. We thank you, Lord, for the way you have called her, the way you have bought and redeemed her with your own precious blood, the way you've given her a new song in her heart, and the way you've given her the ability to give you glory. And so we ask now that through her word, which will be your word to us this morning, we ask that you would be glorified in your servant and your daughter, Robin. And then, Lord, we ask, too, that you would prepare our hearts, that as we hear and receive this, would you give us manna today for our spiritual journey? Would you encourage us and build us up as your own body, redeemed by your blood? And so we ask this for your glory, and we ask it in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Ready? Ready. All right. Oh, you can hear me. I can hear me. Okay. Well, thank, thank you, Deborah. And that prayer was exactly my prayer because I'm, I've got some thoughts, but um, and I myself ends up being the example in a lot of them. But if it, if I, my prayer is that everyone will say, "Oh, yeah, that's true for me too." I, I know what you mean. So we'll see. Now it's very overwhelming to be standing here. I'm standing on some very beloved shoulders, and um, but I'm taking my turn talk to my dear fellow pilgrims. And I prayed for a way forward with this talk, and soon I realized that signs were pointing to this theme, our walk with the Lord, just a closer walk with thee. And I've had that song running through my head for about six months. Um, so how can I know the Lord's presence all through my days and nights? What I hope to do is to be able to help us see and interpret our lives as they are, and to know more deeply that Jesus is right here. Walking together is how Holy Scripture describes being in relationship with God. Noah walked with God. Enoch walked with God. Micah describes our purpose in life is to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. And walking together is a great image. We see things together, conversation is easier, and we're going somewhere. And I think that all images of walking are pointing to the fact that our life is a journey. It's a progress to the celestial city. Now, many people in the Bible walked with God, and my favorites are the disciples on the road to Emmaus, because they're so much like us. They were walking along with Jesus, and they did not realize it was Jesus himself, risen on the third day. And we're like those disciples, because we trust God, we love Jesus, we want to do his will, but we often don't realize he's right here with us. So today, I'm going to look at ways to see what's right before our eyes to remember and really know that the Lord is at hand. So, I'd like to suggest that being in relation with Jesus is to be saying yes at every moment to something bigger, someone bigger than ourselves. 
It's so easy to believe that everything is up to us, that we alone are responsible for the successful outcome of whatever we're called to do. And it's so hard to understand that taking charge of our lives, not to mention the lives of our loved ones, is actually a selfish thing to do. It's literally seeing ourselves as Lord, and it's exhausting and not easy to shake because we really believe we ought to be doing it. So I'd like to look at St. Paul. He was Saul the Pharisee, devoted to God, determined to honor God by ridding him of the followers of Christ. Now we're not going to be too hard on Paul. This brilliant student of Hebrew scriptures was overflowing with the love of God, like us, and he was quite sure that God wanted him to make things right. Now, have you ever felt this way, that making things right is all on your shoulders? Having the best arguments, I'm, I was very good at that, um, and I thought it was the right thing to do. Working so tirelessly that you're a grump to your family, a grump to your friends, a grump to yourself. I certainly have, and it isn't pretty, but it was all I knew. Growing up, the most common response to any story that one of us would tell was to say, well, what did you do about that? Or, better still, what did you say back? And I assure you, I waited for the Lord was not the right answer. <laughs> we were an argumentative batch, and that's the way it was. So that was Saul. In his efforts to do something about the Christians, he resorted to murder. He reveled in self-righteousness. And in his own words, in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. Until, on his way to Damascus, God threw him to the ground, Jesus met him right there, and everything changed. Saul said yes to Christ, and later he wrote, all the promises of God find their yes in him. Now we'll come back to Saul, but right now I want to think about when we say yes to God. I mean saying yes when what we want to say is, no, I want it my way, which might be most of the time. I mean the core yes to Jesus himself and the trust that everything that happens is in his hands, period. It means praying a lot, and that is, praying a lot is keeping Jesus in mind, the way we do a person we really love, and then we do our best and let go of second guessing. That sounds pretty good. But it's a giving up over and over. As Oswald Chambers says, it's giving up the right to myself. But it's not self-sacrifice. It's nothing really obvious. It's just a shift in perspective. So it's kind of like on our family drives to Virginia, where, to Blacksburg, Virginia, where my husband's father lives. And it's a nine-hour run. And I love driving. I mean, I, some of you know I really love driving. But eventually, I have to let someone else have a turn, and so I reluctantly give the wheel to another family member. And at first, I'm watching so carefully and talking about the traffic, and you know how that is, and flinching, lots of flinching, and, and you, you wish they would do it differently. And then finally, it's by the grace of God, it usually comes in the voice of the current driver. I, yeah. And the Lord says, chill, mother. And I am reminded to let go. And then you've you got to look the other way. I look out the side window, and there are all the cows and the trees. And pretty soon you catch the other driver's rhythm, and you relax. 
and get some rest because I've been clutching the wheel for way too long. Okay, so that's an analogy, but it gives a sense of what, yes, Lord, I'm all yours feels like. And it's a good analogy because it takes in the way that saying yes is an ongoing thing. At every moment in the car, I am saying, yes, Lord, I trust you with this driver, instead of slow down, watch out. And that's life. Yes, I trust you in this traffic jam. Yes, I trust you with the thing I forgot to do. Yes to the news from a child. Yes to an illness. Yes to a hurt. Can you think of a time when all you could do was trust in the Lord? He's very good at taking us to that place. And from the outside, it looks so frightening. But when you're in there, it's what Richard Kipling calls a, a damn tight spot. Um, that's from Kim, and that's just a wonderful book. <laughs> but, um, but we know what that means. You're in there, and from the outside, it looks like, I don't know what I would ever do if that happened, but when you're in there, there's a marvelous sense of standing on bedrock. It means saying, I don't know how it's going to work out. I can imagine the worst and go dashing off to fix things, or I can trust you, Lord, and let you work through the circumstances because I know you love me. It means saying yes to good things, too, to happy surprises, good news, beauty, my life's in God's hands, and that's all I need to know. And so this is one of my very favorite verses, St. Paul's words from Romans. From him, through him, and to him are all things. Now, we'll go back to St. Paul. He was on his way to Damascus to round up Christians and bring them to Jerusalem to be punished and put to death. A bright light came from heaven. He fell to the ground and heard the Lord call his name, Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul asked, Who are you, Lord? Oh, I, I think he knew the answer. And listen to the Lord's reply. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Now imagine what that felt like. Have you ever been caught in a terrible mistake, a sudden realization that you'd been totally wrong? And I know I have. And you want to slink away, maybe face the music, but so ashamed that punishment's all you can ever imagine. That, that's got to be what's going to happen next. Saul was face to face with a resurrected, glorified Christ himself. And I'm sure he expected to be put to death then and there meeting the risen Lord. But instead, Jesus tells him he has a purpose for him. Saul is to be a servant and witness for Jesus. Instead of absolute rejection, Saul is given the promise of the ongoing presence and love of the Lord, and he's given a job. Jesus says, Rise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And I want to hear those words spoken to us. Work is saying yes to God on his terms. Saul was to learn that all of his own efforts were so much trash, but when he said yes to Jesus, then Saul, the one who made havoc in Jerusalem, became the Lord's chosen instrument to proclaim his name. This was the complete opposite of what Saul had intended, but his yes gave him new life and gave us the bedrock of our theology. So, let's bring that back to ourselves. 
Soon after moving to Birmingham and joining the Advent, I was asked to help with Lenten lunches. And I was so eager to be a part of this work. Um, Shirley Ann recruited me where are you at, to make salads. Yep. Um, the whole guild, we marched in and made salads. And I loved it. I mean, it was love at first sight. I was, remember following Virginia Morton around the kitchen thinking it's the best fun I have ever had. And I like, it's a natural fit. I love cooking, planning, kitchens, the excitement, the time pressure, the camaraderie. These were wonderful gifts, and I really had the time of my life. And when I became chairman, that's when I realized how much I was in over my head. Um, one of our visiting preachers said, you are in charge, but you're not in control. I never knew how much I believed in control till I had to give it up. Things went well, not for me. The Lord always provided the right person at the right time. Sometimes I knew who to call. Sometimes help just came walking in. Things went well for the most part. A lot of the time we were learning good lessons. You know what that, how that goes. And it, so it was. It was a very humbling time. I learned firsthand what it means to trust God's provision. I found myself answering the Lord will provide to more and more questions, praying and praying that it be so. We all prayed a lot, inwardly and outwardly, and there was a great spirit in the enterprise, and we watched the Lord rescue us over and over and over right up to this very day. It is so heartwarming to walk in there, and time has just stood still. Well, the people are getting younger, I have to say that. But, <laughs> um, but the great thing, the, the great thing about this, he was providing in the physical things, but the greatest thing was the sense of freedom. Knowing our labors were from God meant that the work could never be my own identity. This was God's work. And we, the other chairs and I, had a wonderful freedom from needing to prove ourselves. If we'd intended to prove ourselves, day one generally ruled that out. Things were forgotten, communication issues, sometimes tears. But the Lord provided patience far beyond our own, provided joy in the teamwork, joy in seeing the people appreciate the meals. These gifts were never, ever a reward for good behavior. And that's really important. They just were pure gifts. They could only be signs that he loved us. We could work knowing that the result did not define us in his eyes. Nothing we could do could make him love us less or more. Well, Lenten lunch was a vocation for me, and I hope everyone gets to do work like this at some time in your lives. But not all work is vocation. Some work is just ordinary, repetitive work. I love thinking about monks and nuns, working their gardens, praying their hours, making everything a sacrament. Brother Lawrence, St. Francis, and Emily Dickinson. She's not actually a nun, but it's, it's, you know what I mean. You're just doing the same thing every day, and everything's a sacrament. And that's the kind of work that I'm trying to do now. House and garden at last. I love it, but I... But I get, well, I have. I've always, I mean, it's really important. That's a whole other story. But it's finally time, and I have time to do it, and I still get restless. It's hard to admit that my will is not strong enough. It's a nice afternoon. I have time. But there's this devilish pull against it. But I think what we call willpower is an act of God. Again, often through emissaries, it's easier when circumstances make you do it. But one way or the other, he gets me started, and then the rhythm of the job takes over, 
and it's a chance to still one's thoughts and concentrate on digging the earth or even cleaning the closet. God is most present when the clutter of random thoughts is set aside and his still small voice can be heard. And then comes the reward, the great delight in seeing the results. Now, I can remember my father-in-law, I always, when I think of the results of an afternoon of really hard, quiet work, I always remember my father-in-law describing mowing the lawn. First comes the hassle and the sweat and the bugs and all that, and then he would finish and shower, and he'd come back out to the patio and look at it. And he, he was trying to find words as he was telling me this story. And he said, it's, it's, just, it's, it's just swell. <laughs> and, uh, it, and it is. And in this kind of work, the Lord assigns us it. He gets us through it somehow, and he shares our pleasure when it's done. Now, there's another kind of work that many know too well, and this is the kind that brings a person down. An office could be contentious or dreary. The job might be mindless and the boss terrible. Some jobs are that way, caretaker jobs. People show great courage doing what they've got to do, and I know that courage is God-given. It's a really hard place, not just because of the circumstance, but become, because it comes so tempting to blame the circumstance. And then you get this low-grade grudge going on. We pray for things to change or people's attitudes, but sometimes nothing gets better. But if we keep on praying, we get more and more in tune with the fact that no matter what the circumstances are, Christ himself is with us and he loves us. Now, in times like this, I learn it's best by reading old prayers and letting someone else's words carry me. Things do get better eventually. The Lord provides ways, and he sometimes just provides a different way of seeing, and nothing on the outside changes. But however it works out, we're spending a lot of time with him and getting to know each other really well. Now, here's a rough job story. A friend of mine recently underwent a three-hour annual review in which she was basically told to get a different personality. <laughs> and um, as she sat there, though, she, she was calm. She just accepted her boss, accepted herself, and finally was able to say, even with a smile, at the end of her, uh, the spiel, well, I'll give it my best shot. Only the love of Christ can give that patience. He searches us and knows us. We're in touch with him more than we know. Somewhere deep inside, there's a prayer going up. Seeing his gifts, supernatural patience, smiles here and there, we know we're in touch. It doesn't take us out of the slogging, but there's, we're not alone, and there's meaning in our labors, even if we, we may never see it. So these are some ways that we're called into work. Um, St. Paul knew them too. He knew vocation. He was preaching, and the Holy Spirit was certainly speaking through him. He knew the drudgery when he worked as a tent maker. He knew terrible circumstances too, what with getting beaten, thrown out of cities, jailed, shipwrecked, and always the deeper pain to his heart of his people's rejection of Jesus. God's gift of work, whatever form it takes, is going to make us know how helpless we, we are, how helpless we are, sooner or later. It took me a long time to realize this, 
I was self-sufficient from a young age, and I intended to stay that way. But I was also prayerful, and those two lines have always intertwined somewhat. But it was not until my late 50s that I really hit helpless. So Lenten lunch and the other church meals that I loved doing, and I did do a lot, um, I loved every one, but inevitably they began to be just plain hard work. The, the joy of the calling simmers down. And one day I realized <clears throat> that I'd, well, you know, over some period of time, but at some point the Lord provided this understanding that I had fallen into the mindset not of earning the Lord's love, I knew better, better, but working to show myself that I deserved the good things he was giving me, things that, things that showed he loved me. But I had to, my work turned into a way of showing God that I loved him. I had wonderful friendships, and I had the fun of planning and cooking, good bit of authority, at least in the kitchen, and some really meaningful responsibilities beyond the kitchen. And at this point, I realized I ought to say I had a nice family, too. And I, I, well, the poor things are totally out of this, but they were always there and, I, and, 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 and always seen as a gift, always, see, always seen as a gift, a fun family. So I knew I was loved but I felt compelled to deserve it. And that's a scary place. It suddenly felt like paddling upstream when for so long I had just been surfing those waves. But by the grace of God, I saw that as a new stage. It was a call to me to practice letting his will be done. My will was, in t it was inclined to quit. And that's an understatement, I wanted to quit. If I can't ride the waves, I don't want to do it at all. I don't like paddling. Instead, it, but but I, I kept on staying on, um, and it was not a conscious thing in the slightest, it, it, but it was a call to deeper prayer, and I started receiving any number of signs that my staying on was his will, and most especially wonderfully committed volunteers, those Wednesday nights, um, and they just kept showing up and doing all that work, and we would always have a fun time, and I always say, next, I'm not doing it next time. But then I was always be doing it. And, you know, God's hand was clearly in it. And the other really clear sign was that internally I was given just rivers of inner peace. It, whether I liked it or didn't like it, this was clearly where I was meant to be. Inner peace and tons of nice people on the outside. And over and over I was handed just the right thing to keep me going. And this was the point at which I really learned for myself, experienced for myself, passed the head to the heart. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. So what I'm getting to now is that the real work that we're called to do, the work within the work, is the call to put our attention onto God in everything we do, remembering his presence. This is the real work. But again, there's a devilish gravitational pull against it. The pull is to revoke our yes, to say, what about me? Even the most glorious prayer-filled vocation, there's a voice saying, isn't it time for a rest? Or, what a good girl am I? Or, worse yet, that grumbling voice that finds fault with my fellow pilgrims. So you see, even in the work of prayer, we are humbled. But if we give this, our worst, to Christ, we find he already knows and he understands. The pressures or the drudgery of daily tasks land us on our knees 
And even if our prayer is a bunch of complaints, it's received with love. Praying is, of course, talking to God. It's also listening. As we pour out our complaints or cry help, we know we're being heard, and that in itself is a relief. The next step is to allow ourselves to hear the Lord's reply. And this is where reading the Bible comes alive. And filling our mind with verses gives the Holy Spirit a way to send them to us right when most needed. It's a, and um, well, I'll put in a, a plug for memorizing certain pieces. And there they are, right on the shelf when you need them. But it is the idea of not studying the meaning as much as you are hearing it come back at you. And one of our preachers said just a couple weeks ago, every Bible story is a prophecy being interpreted in our own lives. Isn't that great? Um, We are Shadrach and the others in the fiery furnace, and the fourth man is with us. We are all the Psalms, parables, and the epistles are written to us. So praying is our real purpose, and the daily labors are given to make prayer necessary and possible. The results are wonderful things. They're part of God's plan. But I believe when he said, rise and stand upon your feet, he was, it was all about bringing Paul into closer relationship with him. And he says, this guy needs work to do. And I think he does that to us. The stress and strain and helplessness of being responsible for something, the rescues, great and small, and the day-in, day-out stuff of life, all these are a direct path to constant prayer. And it's a path, and you know where this path leads? It leads us to a cliff, and we fall into the love that's waiting for us. God's love becomes a concrete fact. Jesus knows how hard it all is, and he cares, and he's promised his presence. He provides what we need, and most especially fellow pilgrims, to encourage us and to laugh and cry with us. Jesus has chosen us all to be one with him, forgiven, loved, and free. So we're not only walking together, we're walking hand in hand. And I'm going to close with a prayer from one of those written prayers that I still, sometimes someone else's words are what we need. And I love the idea that we're standing on shoulders, that this is, um, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Alcuin of York written in about the year 790. So it was that 1,320, 30 years um, later, and it's, it's just as much our prayer as it was his. So let's pray. O King of glory and Lord of valors, our warrior and our peace, who has said, Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Be thou victorious in us, thy servants, For without thee we can do nothing. Give us to will and to perform. Grant thy compassion to go before us, thy compassion to come behind us. Before us in our undertaking, behind us in our ending. And what shall I now say unless that thy will be done, who dost will that all should be saved? Thy will is our salvation, our glory, and our joy. Amen. Any questions, comments? Any examples of this hitting a place in your life? Well, I can give you some. (laughs) (laughs) 